welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. We are very, very lucky to have with us today Nancy Muir. Welcome, Nancy. Good morning or good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Depending on what part of the world you're in. Yes, so we are over in Norwich, East Anglia in England. I believe you are in Colorado? Yes, so I'm in kind of towards the western side of the United States. So good morning to you and I hope you've got your morning cup of coffee ready for the interview. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) So I I guess I want to thank first um, Andrew Younger at the International Hip Dysplasia Institute for putting the two of us in contact. He approached me a few months ago after hearing some of the initial podcast interviews and just said, I think you and Nancy would get on so well. You'll have so much in common, so much to talk about. So um, if you're listening, Andrew, thank you so much for putting us in contact. Um, Just to give you a little bit of um, backstory on Nancy, um, and we've got so much to cover today. Um, Nancy and I are both physical therapists, as you call them in the States, and physiotherapists in the UK. Um, we both have a passion for running um, and an interest to raise awareness and educate people in the hip dysplasia world. So um, if I could ask you just to give us a little bit of backstory on how you even started being aware of hip dysplasia. I know your diagnosis was fairly late in life. Yes, yeah, so I was diagnosed back in 2014. I was um, 31 years old at the time. So. quite a a few decades into life. And before that, I really had, I had working as a, a, I work in in pediatrics. So I work through neurodevelopmental care. So I work with infants and children's and I'm certainly very familiar with hip dysplasia because it's something that I'm constantly screening babies for. I've seen it in babies. I've seen it in, um, had kids who have had a history of hip dysplasia. I treat a lot of children with neuromuscular disorders and hip dysplasia is very common in in children um, with neuromuscular conditions as well. So definitely very familiar with it. To be honest, you know, Laura, we're probably close to the same age or a few years apart, but um, even when I was in physical therapy school, there was no, I don't remember ever having hip dysplasia as a differential for an adult. with Me neither. It didn't come up at all. (laughs) I think very, very, and I graduated in 2008. I'm not sure when you were. Uh, I graduated 2009. Um, okay, yeah, so we're yeah. very close. We, there was a little talk about FAI, femoral acid tabular mm-hmm. impingement, yeah. but I'd never, I never even knew that adult hip dysplasia was a, was a thing. And I was very, very fortunate. Um, I actually, it was one of those things in retrospect, I said, gosh, you know, I probably actually have had symptoms for a decade. But it really was, I had run my 24th marathon or ultra marathon, Incredible. and I started having pain at mile 18, and it just was kind of persistent. And long story short, I ended up going to a physical therapist who wasn't sure what it was, but was worried it was a stress fracture. So she just said, I'm not sure what your symptoms are, but I would go to a, a surgeon and I would get x-rays before you even consider running another step. And as Laura, as you know, stress fractures are probably the scariest thing you could ever think you'd hear yep. as a runner. <laughs> So I remember going to an orthopedic surgeon's office and I literally, you know, called them. It was a Friday and I said, do you have anybody I can see soon? And they said, oh, we actually have somebody, you know, we have people on call on Saturdays if you want to come in our sports med clinic. And they said, oh, it just so happens the guy who's um, covering the sports med clinic Saturday morning is a hip guy. So they said, oh, it's just kind of convenient. And thank goodness for that, though, because I went in and I had x-rays and he diagnosed it immediately. Um, he doesn't treat hip dysplasia. 
but he walks in the room and he just goes, oh, he goes, did you wear a harness when you were a baby? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm like, but tell me more about what you're seeing. And he's like, oh, he goes, no, you don't have a stress fracture, but you have hip dysplasia. And it was one of those moments where I think I was so caught up in the idea that I didn't have a stress fracture. And I kept being like, oh, so I can, so I can leave and go for my run. <laughs> and he, he kept being like, well, yeah, but do you listen to what I'm saying? Like, you probably, this is not a hip you should be running long-term on, and you probably need some major running. surgery. And I was like, yeah, but I could leave and go for a run now, right? Because there's no stress fracture. <laughs> but um, he was wonderful because he, he identified it immediately. If he had said, oh, you have bursitis, which is kind of what I was suspecting, or if he said, oh, you have a labral tear, we need to do mm -hmm. a scope. And I mean, I would have just done it and never thought about it again until things got a lot worse. So I actually left his office and I went for a run. <laughs> and then I came home and I started doing research and just, and I, and I actually worked at a children's hospital. So I came home and I actually emailed the head of orthopedic surgery at the hospital where I worked. I said, hey, just to, you know, I just got diagnosed with hip dysplasia, but I'm in my thirties. Like, is that a thing? <laughs> I said, this must be really rare. And he goes, no, he, he wrote back, he was awesome. And he just said, no, he goes, first of all, I'm happy to see you because there's not many people who, he's like, I actually do see some of the adults with hip dysplasia. But he goes, no, it's actually, I mean, he goes, it's, a, it's rare, but it's not that unusual. And it is diagnosed in, in adults. And since then, I've, it's been a whole new world for me. So I, th I think a lot of people um, probably have have hip dysplasia but don't realize it and you know even getting into their 50s and 60s you know I think there's a lot of research coming out now about how perhaps that might be the reason that people are needing a lot of these hip replacements later on in life but haven't necessarily been picked up um, and I think there are probably a lot of people walking around out there that might need that diagnosis that haven't possibly had it what are your opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, well, this is a, such an interesting conversation, and I, I've talked to a couple different surgeons who seem to have different viewpoints on it, and from the literature, I'm sure you and I have both read a lot of the literature <laughs> out there. I feel like, you know, this, the, the surgeries that um, they're doing commonly in the adult world have only been around for about 30, 35 years at this point, and I think what's, there's still this question of going, okay, when is the best time to do these surgeries? What are the best indicators for doing them? What are the long-term outcomes for them? And it's interesting because I, you know, for me, my decision-making would have been very, very, very different if I was in my fifties or sixties mm -hmm. and diagnosed with hip dysplasia, you know, and I think at those ages, it's a little bit more um, conventional to go a, the, the route of a total joint. And, you know, in my 30s, I decided to go the route of a hip preservation surgeries, which hopefully will, you know, they, they were saying, if I don't do anything, I'll probably need a total joint by the time I'm 40. I so, got the same thing. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, I'm hoping that this is going to prolong it. But it's one of those things where I also know individuals who are in their 50s or 60s who are just getting diagnosed with hip dysplasia. And you know, I know some who have actually been offered some of these hip preservation surgeries. And I think it's a, I think it's a very individualized decision at this point. I think the big thing though is kind of what you, what you mark on is that hip dysplasia, you know, there is this thought now of saying probably a, a number of total joints, especially in kind of those 
middle decade, you know, 50s, 60s, might be more related, you know, could be related to undiagnosed hip dysplasia. And I think where at least I'm seeing a need for the field in that area is finding surgeons who can treat the spectrum of hip dysplasia and understand the structure um, in older adults, even though the option, you know, at this time, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I've, if I was in my 50s or 60s, I'd probably be going for a total point and not trying to go these hip preservation routes um, for a number, for a number of individualized personal factors. Mm -hmm. But I think having surgeons who understand those structural abnormalities and how a dysplastic hip is different from a hip that's typically developing, but just arthritic. Um, you know, because I think there's probably different considerations that need to be made for the different types of total joints that you might use or other modifications that need to be done during surgery. Um, and I'm sure, Laura, were you diagnosed as an adult? Um, so I um, was diagnosed late, but I was 18 months old. So I'd missed the chance oh, okay. for the pavlik harness um, and um, the sort of more con um, non-surgical methods. So um, basically they said that I, they did nothing um, and waited until I was 10 until I was formed enough to then be able to, to have the PAO done. So I had my left PAO done when I was 10 um, okay. and uh, not had any revisions as yet. Um, but uh, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. But um, I'd I'd love to sort of pick your brains on some of the some of the things around running. Um, that like I said, we both have a passion yeah. for having common. Um, and some of the things that I've read about in your race report, which we will definitely come back to. Um, the Bear One Hundred race report is an incredible read, um, and I will be putting the link up um, in the podcast notes um, for anyone that wants to go and give it a read. I'd highly recommend it. Um, but there's definitely some decisions that are challenging um, in what you do and don't do. Um, and like I said, we'll definitely come back to that. Um, okay. I think one of the things that's, because I was curious with, and I, I, you know, this would be interesting, and this is would be interesting things that I think need to be explored. But I think for a lot of adults, what I've observed, you know, just through the communities I've been involved in and um, meeting people in their second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth decades with hip dysplasia, whether they go a hip, you know, a total joint route or a hip preservation route or doing conservative management, but is that hip dysplasia really takes a toll on the body, you know, no matter, no matter who you are. And I don't, and I think that's the big question of saying, you know, if we can treat it younger, if you treat it in a 10 year old, it does it improve outcomes compared to if you're treating somebody who's 20 or 30 or 40 who has very dysfunctional movement patterns from it and it's you know, very, I'm, very interesting to have yeah. that. and I think that's going to be a big question that I'm going to be kind of continuing to pose to the the field of surgeons and researchers over the years of saying what what is this idea like if you know if we screen 12 year olds and find hip dysplasia and it's asymptomatic do we do we go in and do these surgeries with the idea that we can maybe optimize joint development throughout the life? Or, you know, the other thing I always say is I know people in their 50s or 60s who have been marathon runners, hikers, skiers, very, very active people. They get diagnosed at 55. And I say, gosh, if you had gotten screened at 12, could you have risked being in, you know, ending up with a surgery and, and um, you know, most of the time the surgeries go great and people have good outcomes, but I still say we don't really know, you know, like you, you had a PAO at 10. Yep. What, what's you, what are you going to look like at 50? 
you know, and same thing with me. We say, okay, if I had not had the, it, it's just, there's a lot of things we don't know yet. Yeah. It's just because the time hasn't passed yet. <laughs> and also like the, the surgeries that happen now, um, the PAOs that are done now are done in a completely different method to mm-hmm. how they were when I had mine done. You know, the, the, the structures aren't cut as much now. They're just moved to the yeah. side. Like, so, um, you know, your hip flexors and your TFL, your tense fasciolata, um, you know, they're not cut anymore. They're just moved, which is so much better in terms of the rehab capability afterwards. Um, you know, there's still obviously lots of complications and everybody's surgery is individual, but just everything is just moving on so much in terms of what they are doing and the, the things that think they're thinking about to preserve as much strength and stability as possible while going through these surgeries. I think it's incredible some of the work that's being done right now. And selection by or selection is improving too, or becoming more refined, you know, and especially not necessarily looking at the pediatric side, but looking at the early cohorts of the PAOs back in the early 80s. Um, I think that the people that are now being selected for surgery and that they're saying, oh, you're a good candidate, or maybe you're not a good candidate, are quite different too. So mm-hmm. there's just so many things that are always evolving. And, um, I think that's also why it's maybe taken a little bit longer for some of the research to pick up because the numbers of the people that this affects, we're, we're starting to learn that they're a lot more prevalent perhaps now than we thought that they once were. But mm-hmm. the cases were so few and far between that it's quite difficult to get sort of quality cohorts and research and you know to hit the standards to make all of these clinical decisions you know take them forwards and put them out to the public so you know hopefully now with the amount of awareness that's being raised you know by yourself with miles for hips and the international international hip dysplasia institute hopefully the more awareness we can create the more funding for the research you know the more this is going to be able to be picked up earlier and the decisions are going to be able to be made in a better way so um yeah, and again, the miles for hips something is something that I want to come back to and have a chat to you about as well. So uh, um, we'll come back to that. Um, but just going back to some of the surgeries, you know, we were talking about um, the surgeries that you've had, um, you know, the diagnosis back um, when you were 31, but then you had all these surgeries done on your right side um, the year after that. So I've had, yeah, so back in... Yep. 2015, I had my right side surgeries done. Yeah. So I had a right hip um, arthroscopy, what people call a scope, mm-hmm. and a, a pelvic oste- a periacetabular osteotomy, so the PAO. You had that all done in one go, didn't you? In I had one in one go, yep. Um, I, some, I've seen it different ways. Um, you know, some surgeons here will separate them by a couple of weeks. Um, mine, literally, I, I would never even have known that I had scopes because <laughs> I don't know what it's like to recover from a scope because literally they just knocked me out. And when I woke up, I had everything done. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, it, you know what, it, for, for me, I mean, I, that's the only thing I've experienced. Um, I think it was, it was great because it's one surgery, one anesthesia event, one recovery. Um, but I certainly know people have had them spread out and, and have reasons that they prefer that as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, it was, it was ideal, especially with working and things, it's hard to take multiple Time you know, medical leaves. So, um, yeah, so I had those in January of 2015. And then I ended up having my left side, same thing, scope and PAO done at the same time, um, about 22 months later. So October of 2016. Mm-hmm. And then um, I obviously ended up getting back to a lot of great things in between. 
but I've always had a, um, some ongoing left side issues. So I actually just had a left femoral osteotomy for um, femoral aniversion. So my femur and that was, was just last month, wasn't it? Yes, it was four weeks ago. Yeah. So I'm actually still on medical leave, which is, <laughs> which is why I have time to talk on a Thursday morning. And <laughs> there's going to be some uh, some positives to take from uh, from that. You know what? I mean, we can chat about this later too. But it's it's one of those things where it, you, you, I feel it's really important. There there definitely are positives. I mean, I can't you know, fr from hip dysplasia, not just talking about saying, oh, it's nice to have some social <laughs> disability where I can have a phone meeting at 8 a.m. But <laughs> on a work day, but um, definitely, definitely many, many silver linings and many things that have come out of my hip dysplasia diagnosis that I never would have dreamed of. And it's hard to separate, you know, what is and what isn't. Um, but yeah, so I just had that left femoral osteotomy. I unfortunately also am having some issues on my other side and I'm currently undergoing a lot of diagnostic workup on that side as well um with little and it's it's hard because you know the hip dysplasia it's it's complex and i've had complicated surgeries on them that have changed my structure and um you know i'm not sure if my issues right now are related to that or if maybe i'm just having running injuries obviously i'm not <laughs> running right now but it's it's it gets very complicated to try to sort things out especially the further you get into it and then there's just you know like i said too with um, oh, what I was saying before with, you know, I think it's just important for medical providers to understand when you're dealing with somebody with a, with a dysplastic hip, whether do, they're, you're recommending conservative management or scopes or, you know, total joints or PAOs or, or whatnot, but just saying that, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of mechanics that are involved. There's a lot of body structures that are involved. There's a lot of stresses that have been abnormally provided, you know, applied across joints for decades. And then, so, you know, and I think it's very hard to sort out what's, what's actually needs to be addressed surgically and what is, you know, I think people with dysplasia, even after surgeries, take a long time to recover. You know, I wouldn't expect a total hip replacement recovery to look the same for someone who's had very um, abnormal, you know, or very dysfunctional muscle system for decades versus someone where it really is a, a very overused you know, but a very typical joint. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and like I said, I, I think it was really interesting what you said about having somebody who hasn't developed those habitual movement patterns pre-surgery to somebody who's then gone through this their whole life and developed those compensation patterns um, and, you know, inequalities, you know, asymmetries in the body to then having the surgery and then having to deal with that, that difference then in the, in the joint integrity. But having a muscle system that's learned to cope with that differently their whole life. Um, on the flip side of that as well, if, I, if I'm looking at my own personal story, you know, I had, I had it done, but then because back then there wasn't the information, the resources from the physios to know what else needed to be done, you know, I got back on my feet and I was walking and, you know, I could play sport again and that was great. But now I look back, you know, as, as an adult and as a phys physiotherapist, and I look back and I see all of the other areas that were affected. It's not just the hip that's affected by these surgeries, you know, mm -hmm. the way that your spine reacts to that, the way that your knee the reacts to that, your ankle, the way that your whole body changes the way that it moves mm -hmm. as a result of that surgery. I think 
and, and I know it's getting a lot better now, but there were just so many other things that I look back and think, oh, there's so many, so many bits of education that have potentially been missed. Um, and like I said, that's, and that's part of my personal sort of, you know, journey is to try and make that awareness out there um, as much as possible, that it's not just the hip that this affects and there's so many other areas that need to be considered. Yeah, and that's something, you know, and I, I'm sure you and I both can speak to this as being physiotherapists, um, and especially both of us saying, oh yeah, when we were in school, this wasn't even mentioned as a differential diagnosis for adult hip pain. But I think there are, I get very excited. I like to follow some of the big um, names kind of in the hip world as far as physical therapy. But it is, it is a complex system and interplay, exactly what you're talking, you know, I mean, because it is, it's spine, it's pelvis, it's hip, it's knee. And um, I know personally, I've been to more physical therapists than I can <laughs> on probably any digit I have on my body. And, you know, and um, there are very, and, and I don't say this negatively about physical therapists, but just more of speaking to the fact of how complex this is and how much room there still is for research and learning and education and just experience with multiple patients. But there are very, there are not a lot of physical therapists who understand these complex interactions very well. Um, I think there are a lot of really good therapists out there. And I like to think that those physical therapists are, are using good clinical reasoning skills and are being creative and thinking outside the box and looking big systems and not just isolated hip rehab, but really when you're working with someone with hip dysplasia, I feel like the hip is almost, it's going to come, but <laughs> it's this, it's these, these movements and this bigger system and exactly looking at how does the, the spine and the pelvis and the hip and the knee and the ankle, how do these all interrelate? Um, and I, it's a lot to look at. I think as well, I'm, I'm not sure um, the percentage of the population knows how wide the scope is for physiotherapy you know it is a massive massive career that's got so many different options and so many routes that you can go and you know physiotherapy isn't just you know musculoskeletal you know there's the neurological there's the respiratory and there's all these all these areas that people can specialize in and you know to ex to expect you know, a physiotherapist, even in a musculoskeletal setting, to have that, ex you know, that amount of knowledge in one particular area of one particular condition, you know, I, th I think that's why it's so amazing within the scope of physiotherapy that you can specialize and go off in so many different tangents and why it's so important that we have that, you know, ability to, yeah. to specialize um, and that there are physios out there that can specialize in these areas and we just need to find them um, and get all that knowledge and learn from them and get information exchange but and i mean this is almost a whole separate podcast talking about exactly that though is that i think i don't know about you but i also feel strongly in the hip dysplasia community to be in um kind of a proponent for physical therapy and trying to help educate patients to be good consumers of physical therapy because i think it, it, there is almost a, a misconception or preconception that if somebody has a PT license, that they know what to do. You do not want to come to me to treat your hip. <laughs> I do neurodevelopmental. I, I work with infants and babies. If you come to me and you're like, my knee hurts, I'm like, yeah, go see, go see somebody who might be able to help you with that. 
but I think it gets into very interesting conversations is, you know, this is also, this is a whole other conversation, but the field of physical therapy is starting to become more specialized and subspecialized. And I don't know about in the UK, but here we're starting to have more residency education, fellowship programs are starting to develop um, kind of these specialized, um, like special interest groups within the, the American Physical Therapy Association. But I think, you know, just like in medicine, a patient would not go to an orthopedist, an orthopedic surgeon who specializes on ankle joints, um, why would you go to a physical therapist who, yeah, and that's the thing is I think with physical therapy, some physical therapists really are very general practitioners and they treat the wide gamut, but I think a lot are becoming more specialized and they are becoming the spine guy or the hip guy or the knee guy. And really these fields are so vast and that understanding is so deep that you really need to have expertise that it is an interesting argument of saying how, you know, it's not a whole other conversation, but how specialized do these fields need to be? Um, you know, what is the role of that general practitioner versus some of these more specialized areas? But I think it's exactly that. And I think a lot of folks don't have access to a physical therapist who has expertise in that area. And that's, I mean, that's okay, that's reality. You know, if you live in a rural area, if you don't have access to a big medical center with therapists who treat volumes of patients with hip dysplasia. I always tell patients, it's okay, but you need to find someone who's willing to understand and willing to learn. And I think, um, you know, I like to find those articles and share them with patients and say, share this with your, with your physio, because it, it is hard. We don't, we don't all have access to everything. And a lot of us do become more kind of super specialized. Absolutely. And I think, I think what you're doing as well with your, um, with miles per hits, um, you know, you're raising that awareness, you're trying to educate people um, in, you know, a little bit more about what physios do, you're trying, you know, and like I said, I was going to come back to this later, but it seems quite appropriate now, and that, um, you know, you're, you're finding ways to help patients, um, you know, like you and me, like a lot of the other people that I've spoken to on the podcast, to understand some of the medical literature that's out there, um, and to, you know, to speak to people in a way that they understand, you know, if I was, if I was to read a chemistry report or an algebra report that, you know, that would mean absolutely nothing to me in the same way that someone might read a medical report on hip dysplasia or, um, you know, some of the surgeries that are being done, some of the research elements, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So I think some of the work that you're doing around that and just trying to basically translate those texts so that people can understand them, I think is absolutely incredible. And um, when did you start thinking about doing that? You know, it, um, it's been kind of a work in progress for a bit. Really, the Miles for Hips started last year, and we could talk a little bit about that later. But that was really just a one-time event. That was never meant to come develop into all of this. But um, once again, Andy Younger at the IHDI um, was wonderful. And I finished my race and he's like, okay, what's next? What's your next race? What are we doing next? And I was like, ooh, I, you know, that's, that's gonna get old, me just doing races and running around being like, hey, do you wanna support hip dysplasia? And I said, I really, I said, I'd, I'd love to continue and having the support of the IHDI behind it um, really does make it, make it possible. But um, I'd say we're, a lot of my inspiration for this project actually comes from some of my academic work. So I actually, I do work full-time as a physical therapist. I've been a, a physical therapist for over a decade now, but I actually, back in 2014, very shortly before my hip dysplasia diagnosis, I ended up going back to school 
um, and I'm working on a, a postgraduate degree I'm working on as a doctor of health science and rehabilitation sciences. And it's similar to a PhD kind of degree, but it's a little bit more clinically focused um, than academically focused. I could certainly go into academia with it, but um, for me as wanting to be more of a clinical application person, it's, it's um, been a nice way to do that. I am currently like seven years into the program and no end of sight. So no, I'm only five years into the program, but still no end in sight. So, but um, my, it was funny because when I got accepted into this program, I had never heard of adult hip dysplasia. And my research was actually supposed to be in looking at running mechanics in children with cerebral palsy. And that was my, that was my area. I was like, well, I treat children with cerebral palsy. I'm a runner. I love this. I love biomechanics. This is my area of interest. And as I started going into this, this was the first time I've ever been a patient. I was one of those people who, you know, went to the doctor once a year because I just felt like you should do that to be a healthy person. <laughs> but other than that, I was a very, you know, low utilizer of the healthcare system, um, really never got sick, injured, anything. And so this was the first time being on the patient side. And it was just a very enlightening perspective. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a you know, I work in healthcare. I speak the lingo. I have an understanding that, you know, from just a healthcare perspective of, um, that's probably a little higher than, than patients who don't work in healthcare. I, you know, I've got many levels of graduate degrees. I, you know, I'm a pretty well-educated, knowledgeable healthcare provider. And yet I would come out of surgeon's office and I mean, it was like being hit by a brick and I'm just like, what just happened? Wow. You know, and you come out and I'm like, I didn't ask the questions I wanted. I, you know, gosh, I didn't ask this. I didn't ask this. I don't understand this. I just nodded my head and said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, and there's just so much information and I'm coming home and I'm pouring through research articles and going, gosh, I, I have access to research articles. A lot of people don't have access to research That's true. articles. And um, I can understand them and I can understand some methodology. I can understand limitations and considerations of research. And and I still felt very lost in the system. And, you know, so between that and then starting to explore these areas of these like social media networks um, and support groups, I got it, you know, very interested in going, gosh, the patients want information. And the fact that patients are coming to other patients for information, I think is a sign to me that there's, there's first of all, maybe multiple areas of expert providers. And I think patients do have an expertise in certain, in certain realms of healthcare. I also think um, that it, it indicates that, yeah, maybe there are some things that are lost in the medical encounters, like information that patients just aren't getting. And, and there's just a lot of misinformation out there. And I think that's the stuff that scares me is that people are getting people, and including myself, it's hard to separate, you know, the emotional response. It's hard to separate understanding why you know if you have somebody who's going oh that's a horrible decision don't don't do that that's you know <laughs> i had that surgery and it ended up really badly you know it's it's hard to separate all of that so my actual interest for my research in my in my academic program actually developed into this interest around this concept of shared decision making in healthcare and in shared decision making you basically have the healthcare provider coming to the table as the expert in knowing about the condition, they're the expert in understanding the treatment options, um, but then you have the patient coming to the table as the expert in themselves. They're the ones who understand their, you know, their, their whole 
kind of what we call like a biopsychosocial system. You know, they're the ones who have say, these are my preferences. This is the stuff I value. These are the things that are really important to me. And with shared decision-making, it's this concept that really you need to bring all of this expertise to the table and exchange information and then make a joint decision. And so with Miles for Hips, um, I think a big part of it is, you know, there's, there's a lot of misinformation going around. There's a lot of patients seeking information. And, you know, I think really the, the relationship needs, the key relationship needs to be between the patient and the healthcare provider when making this decision. And, but I think a patient can only really bring their expertise to that table and be empowered to help with that decision-making if they have an understanding of their condition. And so I think that's really where, Miles for Hips, really one of the things I wanna do is we wanna strengthen the healthcare patient, you know, the healthcare provider patient relationship. We're not looking to say, oh, there's so much wrong in the healthcare system patients need information, come here. Really what we're trying to do is help give some background information, help maybe take some of that time out of the healthcare um, setting, you know, of trying to build basic understanding, but really allow patients to come to the table as knowledgeable, empowered members of their healthcare team so that they can sit down with their provider and really have a conversation where they're equal participants. Um, so, Really, that's where, where the inspiration behind it comes from. Um, so at this point, given the fact that my dissertation is far from being finished, <laughs> it's, and it really, my dissertation does not necessarily have to do with Miles for Hips at all, but it's almost a little bit of an experiment saying, can we really build this grassroots patient effort to help one another um, you know, through education, information exchange, help people find medical providers who they trust and work well with, help them bring their expertise to the table, understand what's going on from the medical side, and really hopefully make overall better um, decisions related to their medical care. And, you know, the literature is starting to say that shared decision-making, a lot of times, it's a better experience for the patients. Patients have more satisfaction with their outcomes, sometimes better outcomes, um, satisfaction with their overall care. And satisfaction is also improved on the physician or surgeon side. So it's really a win-win situation, I think, when we can make this a team effort. So I that's kind of where Miles for Hips is hopefully going to be heading and hopefully helping to put a, you know, make a footprint on, on healthcare. I, I think it's a phenomenal way forward. I mean, I remember working you know, on the wards you know, back 10 years ago, um, and we used to have these MDT, multidisciplinary team meetings, um, and it would be the nurses, the physios, the consultants, you know, basically everybody but the patient. And we would have these meetings every day to discuss, you know, each of the patients that we had and that we had any concerns about. Um, but you're right, the, the patient was the one that was missing and the patient yeah. is, you know, giving you half of the information that you need. So mm -hmm. to have neglected that in, you know, in the history of, you know, what we've been doing previously, seems like such a major oversight now so i think like i said it's a phenomenal way forwards um and it it just seems like why did we not think of this before why is this not being there before but yeah well and i've kind of been there and that's the thing is i'm also hoping that you know we're very very early in our development and trying to get information out there and i mean it's 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 a learning process because i'm a physical therapist and i know nothing about 
<laughs> organizational strategy and business models. And oh, that's a whole other world for us. <laughs> oh my gosh, trying to build a website. Oh, forget it. I mean, it's, it's, been a, it's been a learning process, you know, from the, the ground up. But I'm hoping that also down the road, we might be able to serve as a model for other patients and other diagnoses. You know, people who could come to us and say, gosh, this is, this is really interesting. We're dealing with X and X diagnosis. Could you help us build a similar model um, to, to help with, with this similar concept? Um, there's a great group actually up in Canada called the, the Arthritis Research Canada. And I use them for a lot of inspiration too, um, just because they're a very grassroots, like patient-driven, um, they're, they're huge, but they really, um, you know, are really joining patients and physicians and researchers um, into these big academic networks, but with the idea that um, the patients are a very integral member of that team. And I agree with you. It's, it's funny because even as a patient, I've had, you know, times where my surgeons are going, oh yeah, well, we're going to take your case to our team meeting. And it's one of those things where I go, I kind of want to, like, I kind of want to call in. And I understand why they don't want me to call in, because I'm annoying. But, but it is one of those things where you, you do, you say, you know, and being on the healthcare side, there are conversations that happen at some of these meetings where you're like, yeah, you probably want to sort it out as a group first before letting a patient hear all of it, because sometimes it's just throwing out ideas that maybe for one reason or another you don't want to go that direction, but it is a very interesting concept of this idea of like transparency in medicine and, um, you know, but I, I really do feel that patients need to be educated, knowledgeable members of, you know, they don't need to have the expertise in hip dysplasia. They're, that's what the surgeon is for, but, or the physical therapist is for, you know, you don't have to be, figure it all out as a patient, but being able to at least get to the table and understand and be able to have that information exchange is so important. So we just look to try to see can we empower patients and, and help support patients in doing that. And that's absolutely fantastic. I, I admire the work that you're doing so much. And I'm sure when, uh, when these articles and all this information comes out, again, I will be definitely promoting all of your stuff so that again, we can just spread that awareness as far as far as we possibly can. Well, we appreciate it. And it is, has been very <laughs> exciting, though, already. You know, I've had people from South Africa and Canada and the UK and um, Scotland reaching out and saying, ooh, we want to get involved. And it really is very cool to see kind of this worldwide effort um, coming together. So it, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I appreciate it. You said that you've been doing um, a bit of work with some others in the UK. Um, so, and that's within the Miles for Hips. Um, yes. I think. Yeah, I've got, I've got a couple, um, actually, yeah, I've got a couple of people in the UK who have been helping to contribute to some of our um, resource database, which is really exciting. Um, we've got, we've got a couple of women, um, one's another physical therapist there who's developing some research materials for us. And we've got a, a running coach, and massage therapist. Oh, brilliant. Um, Alexa, oh, Alexa. Do you know Alexa? Yes. So actually, yeah. I've already done an interview with her. It's actually out on the podcast already, which is awesome. So we're, yeah, anybody. She is, she is amazing. And she's one of our, she's actually one of our very regular contributors. She can get me <laughs> materials. What will, one of the other big things with Miles for Hips is we also have a medical advisor who reviews all the information we put out there. And one of the things is we really try to make sure that the information we put out is very, as unbiased as possible. As possible. Um, we recognize that different surgeons and 
have different viewpoints towards different things. And we definitely don't want to come out and say, oh, this is the way you should treat this. Or this is, you know, same thing, you know, physical therapists have different approaches to things. And we don't want to come out and say, this is the right way. This is the wrong way. Don't do this. Don't do this. But very much like, here's the conversation that needs to be had around this topic. Um, so we have every piece of information that we put out reviewed by a medical advisor just to say, yes, this is generally in line with the, the larger orthopedic surgery or you know, medical population. Um, I think it's good to have on the website. But Alexa is one of our contributors. She sends materials faster than I can get our medical advisor to approve. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she is wonderful and such a good public speaker. <laughs> I wish yeah, I had her skills. I completely agree. It was an absolute privilege to have her on the podcast as well. So um, the next thing I wanted to bring us back to um, was your running. Um, yeah. And after you'd had all of your surgeries um, on both the right side and the left side, mm -hmm. you'd had your PAOs and your scopes. Um, there was a point in time after you'd had these surgeries that you decided that you wanted to run a hundred mile, um, the bare 100, I think it's called. Um, so what, at what point after the surgery did you have this idea and uh, how did you then start putting that in, into place? Sure. So the, the, my hundred miler had actually been on my list since, since I was probably 19. So that's been a long-term goal. And it was, and it was one of those things when I got diagnosed with hip dysplasia, you know, the initial talk is about, will I ever even run again? You know, for, forget running a hundred miler, <laughs> will I ever be able to run one mile or one mile again? Um, and that's a whole other conversation too. Um, but yeah, so literally the day of my, of my second PAO, I had the first one and then the left hip started going downhill and I just said oh you know this this isn't my time but I had my second PAO and I literally woke up in the recovery room and was like okay it's time to start planning this oh so <laughs> it literally was in the in the recovery room that I started planning my and I gave myself this very you know I, I, I was very flexible about it but I said you know what if I can do this I want to do it in the next two years. Like I want to do it before my two year anniversary of my second. Wow. Year. And that was just a very arbitrary thing. But, um, but you know, with these surgeries and recoveries, I mean, for me, I didn't, wasn't able to run for a whole year after my first one and really close to a year after my second one. I mean, they're, they're, they're big surgeries and they're big recoveries. So it's not like four months later I'm training, um, or at least not, you know, for, you know, as people would traditionally, as people would tra traditionally but. train even but I figured, the best. yeah, and it actually, I mean, so I, I kind of had this idea and it, I, it was funny because I'd go out on my crutch hikes and I'd do like two thirds of a mile and I was going, okay, I'd only have to do this another like, you know, 120 times and I'd have my hundred miler. And <laughs> so everything I did, I was like, oh, it's my hundred miler training. Um, and then I actually, it was kind of funny, but I still was having left hip issues. And, you know, and I, I think that idea going through my head as a medical provider, as somebody who, you know, recognizes that hip preservation surgery is not necessarily a cure, you know, as a runner, and I, I definitely had a lot of going, okay, should I be running? Should I be doing this? You know, I mean, there, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people out there who would say you probably shouldn't be running after these surgeries. There are a lot of people out there who go, eh, whatever, just go do whatever. I think we really don't know enough to know what, what really are the limits. And I think they're very individualized. 
But so I actually, about a year after my left PAO, I was still having problems. And I actually was getting to the point where I started saying, you know, I think maybe, maybe I'm done running. You know, I just don't know what that risk and benefit trade-off is anymore. And I had a funny week where um, about 13 months later, I ended up getting in a very bad bike accident. And I ended up, I think I, that's when I partly injured my hip again. And then I also ended up fracturing my L1, um, just oh, a compression God. fracture. But it was one of those things where, you know, you're laying on the ground and I had that moment of like literally laying there going, can I move my legs? Can I move myself? You know, because it, it was- assessment on the ground. <laughs> you what? You're doing your own physio assessment on the ground. Well, yeah, but it, it was it was terrifying. It was really, really terrifying. And so that set me back a whole lot. I mean, I, I really just was struggling to even be able to sit up for a while after that, nonetheless, even think about running again. And um, the same week, I had a patient whose mother was came in and she was like, I was like, oh, I haven't seen you guys in a couple weeks and what's new? And she's like, you're not gonna believe this. She's like, I just got diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And, you know, it just, it was one of those things where you, you just have those weeks and you suddenly just say, you know what? Like, none of us knows what's gonna happen day to day. You know, I don't wanna live this life of fear of my hip, you know, and having that stop me from doing things I might wanna try. You know, once again, this was a very personal decision, a very individualized decision, but it was just one of those weeks I said, gosh, you know, like I just had this very scary accident, but I'm okay. And then I have this mom of three young kids who just got diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, and just saying, gosh, just none of us know. And it was one of those moments, I think I just came out and I said, you know what, like, if I want to try this hundred miler, like, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to let my hips scare me and stop me from doing something that I want, that has just been a dream and a goal of mine. for a year. So anyway, I started rebuilding. I literally like could not move because of my spine fracture. <laughs> so, you know, I, but I just said, okay, I'm just going to start hiking again. I'm going to start, you know, and I waited a couple months and started slowly jogging, but I, I set a big race calendar. I said, I'm going to do my hundred miler. And, um, Anyway, so I, I had that out there, but I think I still had a lot of guilt over it because I was going, gosh, I, I still don't know if I should be running on a hip with hip dysplasia. And after I, 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 I mean, you what, don't if I, what if I ruin my hip and then I feel bad about it and I feel bad because my surgeon did a lot of hard work on it. And I had all this guilt and I suddenly said, you know what? I want to do something good for hips with my running. <laughs> so even if, I, even if I trash my hip, let me do something good for hips. So <laughs> that's where the idea of like raising the hip dysplasia awareness came from. And I just said, well, who would I want to support? And I said, well, clearly the International Hip Dysplasia Institute. So I reached out to Andy and Andrew Younger and I said, hey, I've got, I'm like this runner and I've got this idea and I want to run a hundred milers and I want to raise money for the IHDI. And what do you think? <laughs> he was like, I love it. This is awesome. Yeah, he's a runner as well, right? So runner. Would, and I was like, okay, Andy, just so you know, there are definitely people out there who might not think this no, is exactly. <laughs> an awesome idea. So we have to be very sensitive about this, but it was, it was really fun. So anyway, that's how I got set up with the IHDI and they were wonderful because as far as resources, they said, well, what can we do to help you? I said, oh, wow, you're going to like 
help me. This is awesome. <laughs> and so what I said, I said, you know, it would really help if you could help me build a website so that people, cause I had been looking into like GoFundMe and different things, but some of those places you lose a lot of the money, you know, a lot of the money goes towards the, the organization or the, you know, the, the group that you kind of do your activity through. And I said, I really want all my funds to be able to go directly to the IHDI. So they built me a website and you know we're able to make a link just so everything got donated directly to the to the IHDI, but um, yeah, so they were they were incredibly supportive um, and helping to share my story and and just to to give me a way to um, spread awareness and to also um, be able to support them and raise money and and get all the donations going directly to them. So it ended up being a really nice nice partnership. Um, and I forget what my goal was for that, but I think we raised over three thousand dollars. It was a, it was a really, it was more than I, it was a over, well over my goal, but um, it was just, it was just an amazing experience, and it really allowed me to connect with people from all over the world, and um, and really get to know some of the folks at the IHDI and get involved with some of their projects. And then this is, it's turned into all of this. So you know, I decided I'm like, yeah, I, I don't need to keep running races and. <laughs> asking for donations for the IHDI, but suddenly we had a base to grow from. That's absolutely incredible. And like I said, I've read the race report and some of the emotional challenges that must have happened throughout that and the thoughts, you know, when you were going oh. through and, you know, how is my hip doing? Or, you know, you, you're running a hundred miles, you know, and I'm, I've run a half marathon once and I could barely walk afterwards. <laughs> it was like, I think that, you know, should I carry on running or do I need to strengthen more so I can run more, you know, like all of these decisions and, you know, you've gone out and run a hundred miles on a dysplastic hip, two dysplastic hips. And <laughs> it's just the most inspirational thing, you know, that I've heard. And it just hopefully will inspire other people out there to know that if you are determined <laughs> and you know, you know what to expect from your surgery. You have a full understanding of exactly what's going to happen and what needs to be done afterwards to get back to your goal. That, you know, and it might not be possible for everybody. Everybody's got a completely individual case. Yeah. You know, that it might happen. And, you know, reading about the amount of dedication that you had to get yourself back to that stage, you know, two or three hours in the gym every day, you know, doing strength training, you know, I think that's, again, something that people might not have the awareness to know that it takes a lot of time, energy and determination to get that function back. And this is why I just I believe that your story is so inspirational, because I think people don't necessarily know how much work it takes to to get that back. Um, so I know you're a massive advocate for, for the strength training. Um, mm -hmm. Were you doing the strength training? in order to do the running or were you doing the strength training to just strengthen the hip in general or was it just like a very combined approach you know it was um the the recoveries were were really rough i think I, I the second one i was went into with a lot better expectations and a lot better understanding of just how long of recovery this is my first recovery was very different um and i think just mentally i really just had this this feeling you know this this understanding that i was going to be that back to normal at six months <laughs> and when six months hit and I was, I mean, it just, you know, and, and there were a lot of times during my recovery, I think where, you know, the running wasn't coming back. And I kept asking myself, when do you, when do you give that up? Because I think it's always good to have these goals. But on the other hand, I said, it's also very emotionally defeating 
to be putting in so much time and effort with this goal in mind and not hitting it. And I kept saying, would I be healthier if I just accepted that maybe it's not going to come back? And I just, you know, kind of accept that and, and say, okay, there, there's a lot of other things, good things in life. Like, let me just start going that direction. But um, kind of back to the, the idea of strengthening is I, I have such a new respect because before my hip dysplasia surgeries and I had run for, I started running when I was 15 years old or a couple of days before I so I had been running for like 16 years before I got a diagnosis. So running was such a part of my life. And I, like I said, it was during my 24th marathon or ultra marathon that I got diagnosed. So I had run and I had run heavily and I had done road marathons and long distance trails and oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I was one of those runners who just ran. I didn't stretch, I didn't strength train, nothing. It was all about just miles on my feet. <laughs> and and I never got injured. And I never had problems and or you know my I mean my you know later I'm like, "Oh, maybe maybe people don't have hamstring tendonitis for 10 years." But it never <laughs> But um but I have developed such a new respect since my surgeries for the strength. And I think and it's not even just strength training but movement training. I almost feel like that's even that's even more important is that after these surgeries, there's so you have to relearn how to move your body, especially you know with with dysplasia, you have to um, you know you have to really the you know the especially for running the the strength demands of that and the motor control demands for that you know of when you land on your foot, you need your joints aligned in the proper position. You need strong muscles that can control that. You need to have some sense of where where your body is. So um, for me, I've actually gotten to the point where over the years, my running mileage has decreased a lot. Um, my number of days per week running has decreased substantially, but I spend a lot more time strengthening and I really feel to some extent that's what's allowed me to stay, stay on the trails. Um, the other thing is too, is I, you know, like you were saying, not, not everybody can get back to that. And I'm very open to the fact that we, we don't really, understand you know just like reg you know just like other runners though some people are run injured constantly and constantly having stress fractures and you know tendonitis and plantar fasciitis and knee pain and hip pain and ankle pain and other people run for decades and decades and don't have a single complaint and that's poorly understood in runners you know they're always going oh is it the footwear is it the, the terrain is it the mileage per week is it what you eat is it how long you sleep like what are all these variables and i think you know with hip dysplasia it's probably very similar that there's just a lot of independent variables we don't know. Mm -hmm. The other thing um, that people ironically don't understand with my sport of ultra running is that ultra, you know, I'm, I'm a very strong proponent of, of using your strengths and using like a strengths-based approach to life. And in all aspects, you know, saying, what am I good at? What drives me? What are my goals? What am I determined to do? What's easy for me? What, um, what, what do I do naturally? and building off of those. It doesn't mean we don't have to face our challenges and the things that are, are a little harder for us, but if we go at it from a strengths base, um, I, think, um, I think it just really helps with overall happiness. I think it, it just satisfaction with life, and that's my own whole personal philosophy. But one of the things is that ultra running does ironically speak to my strengths. So right now, I mean, I haven't done a road marathon since that 24th race. Mm -hmm. and I'm actually up to, I've done 38 now. 
um, marathons and ultra marathons. Wow. But since that, that 24th race I did was the Cincinnati Flying Pig Marathon, I haven't done a road marathon since that. And I mean, part of me says, oh, that would be a fun goal. I don't know if I'll get there. I think the roads are very hard on my body. But the, the ultra running, when you're running longer distances, you go a lot slower. You know, whereas a marathon, I'm doing 26 miles in maybe under four hours. You know, I say, okay, well, four of that would be 16 hours. No, no, no. My 100 miler took 33 hours. And so, I mean, we're talking a lot slower pace. Um, I'm a strong hiker. And ultra running, you mix running and hiking. So I think it's a little bit easier on my hips for my hips. Um, I also get to use hiking poles on the trails. Which is, you know, and it's one of those things where so, you know, a lot of people just hear ultra running and they're just like, well, more mileage. That's worse for, you know, that's, that's more miles on your hips. And it is, but they're different miles um, than, you know, for me, it's a lot harder to go out and run a 10K on the road fast than it is to go out and run 30 miles on the trail with kind of my run, hike, hiking poles. You know, if something bothers me, I slow down, I walk. It's not, it's, it's not a big deal because, you know, I purposely seek out races now that have lots of elevation gain because I, I need things where I'm doing a lot of hiking because that's my strength. I can still power hike very quickly. I can still get downhills fairly quickly. I have trouble on long, flat stretches. But so, the way that that challenges your hip is different. You're not constantly yes. the same pressure through the same part of the acetabulum. And exactly. you're, not, you're not constantly putting the same pressure through if you're going up and down hills and you're on uneven terrain. So you're just changing the pressure through your hip socket the whole time and changing the muscles that are being activated. So like you said, even though it might be a longer distance, you're playing to the strengths and what your body is capable of and actually what's better for your body. And I think that's probably been a really big eye opener for some of the people that have been listening today is actually, oh, okay, there, you know, there are different aspects of anything that you might want to do. And it doesn't have to always be like one focus. There's so many variables and so many ways that you can choose to enjoy physical activity. You know, you've just got to work with exactly like you said, your strengths, you know, mentally and physically to, to know what you can do and work towards yeah. what you want to do. I think that's absolutely incredible. And I think that's so hard with injured athletes is, you know, especially when you lose your sport. But I think it's, I always say, ask people, I say, what is it that you love about your sport? And, you know, and a lot of times I go, what, what is it? Is it the camaraderie of a team? Is it that, that feeling of pushing your body to all, you know, to, to physical limits? Is it that, you know, on the trails, it's just being able to clear your mind and having that free. And I, I say, look towards those things because like really break your sport down. Is it that you your life will fall apart if you can't play soccer or basketball or run again. But what is it those things that you love and how can you still get those same, those same sensations um, and be active? Because there's always ways. And you and I work, both work in physical therapy. We meet people every day who have, you know, chronic disabilities, injuries, things like that, who do incredible things. You realize you don't need a whole body and a perfect body to be an athlete and to be active and to be physically fit and healthy person. There's so many ways to, to do that. And also to recognize as well that, if, you know, if you are getting all these constant injuries, 
in a certain sport, you know, maybe there are just things that you haven't necessarily thought about, you know, mm -hmm. like you were saying so much about the strength training, um, you know, within my work, my girlfriend and I have a program that we do called Run Strong, um, and it's a 12-week strengthening and stability program with mm -hmm. nutrition for runners. Um, you know, people come on, they do the course for 12 weeks, but they learn to strengthen their body in the way that they should for running. You know, they have Pilates classes all the time. They have stability challenges and they have nutrition habits and sleep habits that they have to do yeah. through the program. And, you know, it's really sort of taking in the big picture and people find these little areas within the, their sport or their goal or their, whatever makes them happy that they haven't thought of, which allows them to then perhaps not get the injuries to enable them to do things for longer and, you know, to enjoy the sport that they love so much. So, and I think something, I love your program. That, I mean, in the, and that's something, yeah, oh, I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about that because I'm, <laughs> but I think you, you also kind of broach on a very important topic too, is I think that, you know, just to give a little plug for physical therapy or even thinking of, of, you know, programs like yours, but I think there's also this kind of misconception in a lot of patients that once you finish, finish physical therapy, you're done. And as a physical therapist, you know, um, what I've actually done with most of my training is sometimes I've gone back to physical therapy 18 months after surgery, you know, and I feel like there are times and places when your body is ready for that next progression. And I always tell people, I say, have you been back to physical therapy? People are like, oh, well, I did physical therapy for four months and they said I was discharged and this is where I'm at. And I go, yeah, but now your body's ready for something more. Maybe you want to get back to a different activity. And I've actually, you know, I, I, I'm physical. I get sick of physical therapy. Like I get, you know, there's so many, so many home program exercises you can do, you know, and sometimes I've given myself breaks along the way where I've said, okay, you know, I just had surgery. I've just done four months of physical therapy. I'm still not allowed to progress to, um, impact activities yet. Let me take a little break and just do stuff on my own. And then I come back to therapy at six months or seven months or eight months post-op. And I do a little bit more work and then I take a break and then you know, at 14 months post-op, I say, gosh, you know, now I'm building up a nice jogging base, but I feel like I need to um, work more on like cutting or being able to do quick direction changes or, you know, and I'll go back to physical therapy or, you know, I've actually personally found working with some personal trainers who really have good um, understanding of movement, you know, and I'm like, I constantly need that movement training and the mechanics training. And I understand, you know, different medical systems are different, but like, like the program you guys have, um, exactly. There are things out there. And, you know, I think just because you, you're discharged from PT at six months doesn't mean you're a hundred percent. And if you want, if you're three years, you know, later and you feel like you're having injuries and things, consider physical therapy again, or consider if that's, cause I do, I just think that strengthening is so huge. And I think hip dysplasia, no matter where you are, whether you're managing conservatively or surgically or, or whatnot, um, has such a huge role because most of us, we were missing the stability in our joints. So that's how you, muscle is, is a layer to that for sure. And it's something that you can change. So I think, I think it's fair to say that we're both advocates for the strength training um, as part of the hip dysplasia recovery, which, and again, really important point, you know, I don't think it ever really ends. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's something that, you know, you have this condition, you have the surgeries, but then we are always 
whether, whether we've had surgery or not, whether we've got an injury or not, whether we've been through life uninjured, you know, we are constantly on this journey to understand our bodies more, learn how we can improve our movement quality, learn how we can be functionally more efficient. Um, and I think it's an incredible way to, to focus that energy and know that we are on a constant journey. It's not something that we go through four or six months or two years. You know, we're always learning um, and there's always more that we could be doing if that's our goal, if that's yeah. something that we want to, to move towards. Um, so, yeah, it's great to that be was, on the same page. And that was quite eye opening for me. And I still laugh because after my first PAO, my physical therapy goal, my personal goal was to get back to the point where I could just run and not have to think about going to the gym again. That was my, <laughs> that was my goal. I was like, no, I just want to be back to like how I was before. I just never thought about going to the gym. And now I laugh so much at that because I'm go, no, it's, it's exactly that. I go, if now, if I want to run, I need to that strong strength base. Running almost needs to be running the product, but without that base con and that constant work. And, and I think, yeah, I think it really is a lifelong commitment. Absolutely. And um, I mean, there are still so many topics that, that we could cover. And, you know, I would absolutely love to have you back on the podcast again to cover some of those other topics. Um, but for today, um, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, it's been incredible to talk to you. Hopefully oh, it's so been a, a bit of an eye opener to um, some of our listeners on some of the topics that we've brought up today. So thank you so much for now. And we hope to see you again really soon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.